Matthew 23. Matthew 23 is where I'd direct your attention to. We're looking at the final paragraph at the end of chapter 23. It's a bridge passage between what Jesus has just said in terms of judgment, woes, provocations, things that made the Lord indignant, righteously angry, um, things that uh, Jesus needed to condemn, he needed to state as a, a woe judgment on Israel for rejecting him as Messiah. And yet the, uh, the woe is a warning to all listening not to go there, not to do those things. This passage, though, is where on the end of Jesus' woe pronouncements, he turns from, you could say, righteous anger to real anguish, um, deep sorrow, deep sadness. It's like all the, all the heavy turns um, soft in Jesus' heart where he just is melting and, and sad over the rejection of Israel, real weeping. This is also bridging to chapter 24, which will talk about the end times again and the heaviness of what's coming for judgment on anyone who rejects, including Israel, but also the hope of Christ's return. So this is a unique kind of statement text on the emotion of Christ in the middle of all of that that's in his mind and in his heart. Jesus is not robotic. He's not distant. He's not the God of deism that is kind of the distant God that is only transcendent. This is God who is engaged in the hearts and lives of people. And the ones that whom he loves is the apple of his eye who are rejecting him. And he is weeping over that. His passion is real. Let me read our text. Verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This text is, uh, it's interesting because it speaks of Christ's real emotion for those who are rejecting, but it also um, introduces a topic that I think is important for us to understand and see, and that is the real matter of free will. Free will. It's something that is never spoken sometimes in Reformed churches, churches that emphasize heavy on the sovereignty of God. A lot of times almost are embarrassed or afraid or shy away from the idea of free will. Man's um, free, being free moral agents, people who actually are responsible for their choice to follow the Lord or reject the Lord and the implications and fallout of doing one or the other. That is something that is replete throughout all of scripture. People are choosing this day whom they will serve, one or the other, going the narrow road or the wide road that leads to destruction. Jesus himself, as we've learned, said, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. That, that begs for a choice and a decision to be made. The reality of human responsibility, it, it dignifies the real responsibility that we have to follow Jesus Christ. And so I want to unpack that through the lament tears of Christ, because he's crying for a reason. 
He's crying over Israel's free will rejection of him. William Barclay said it's the deliberate open-eyed refusal of God's repeated appeal through Christ for them to believe. It's a real lament. Jesus never comes to people by way of forced entry. It's been said that the human heart has a handle only on the inside, not on the outside. A person has to open their heart to Jesus, and Jesus comes only armed with the weapon of love and reach out for people to believe in him. These are packed verses with a lot there in three verses, but I want to talk about free will at the same time as I explain the text. Is free will really a real thing? And why is it important? Now, my title, as you can see, Jesus Lament, Free Will, and Sovereign Grace. It's all here in our text. These are the reasons and results of free will. That's what we're going to look at. And then... First, we need to see the reasons, and then we'll see the results, which are like a cause and effect in the text. First point is the reason there is free will. And there's nobody who really can express what free will looks like better than Jesus. Does Jesus have free will? Well, I think it would be easy to argue, yes, he's sinless, he's God, he's sovereign. Of course, he can do anything he wants, but if you... If you understand Jesus, you understand he's God, but he's also human, fully human. We've been talking about that this morning. And in his full humanity, Jesus was making real decisions and real-time decisions down here on earth that had real implications, even in his own heart. Jesus was um, raised in wisdom, knowledge, in favor of God, with, in favor with man. He, he was this real boy at the bar mitzvah who was learning under teachers and he was learning according to the author of Hebrews, he learned obedience through suffering. It's incredible, but without sin, without sin, all of his obedience was righteous obedience, but it was true, deliberate, decided obedience on the, the, on, in the life of Christ. If you think about Jesus being tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin, according to Hebrews chapter 4, you understand that Jesus was always operating in his full humanity, exercising his will. At the same time, his will was always submitted to the Father's will. In keeping with the sovereign plan of God, he is making real-time decisions, though. Even Jesus, when asked about when he would return, he said it wasn't for him to know the day or the hour of his return. So while he was on earth, he was making decisions in light of the bigger plan, but it was dynamic and real and cause and effect and interactive and offers and rejections. That's the ministry and mission of Christ. And it's a model example for how we live the Christian lives ourselves, knowing God has a plan, knowing he knows the end from the beginning, knowing he's sovereign, yet working real time in the decisions that we make righteously and sadly at times unrighteously that have results. So Jesus exercised free will. That's why you see him crying and weeping and lamenting because he is choosing to be sad over Israel's real rejection. Why do I bring this up? I bring it up to say that Jesus's tears are real. They are genuine. They are sincere. It's as real as when we Grieve the Holy Spirit, we're really doing that. And he really is grieved over our sins. 
Jesus knew the plan. In Matthew 21, he gave the parable of the tenants. And you remember that where you have the master who had the field and he had um, tenants. And then the master sent servants there to collect the harvest and the tenants killed the servants, which is a picture of Israel killing the prophets. And then the master said, well, I'll send my son. Surely they'll treat him right. They won't kill him. And the tenants saw that the son was coming and said, oh, we'll take the whole lot of this land and property by killing the son. And they killed the son. This was Jesus' way of communicating ahead of time that he too was going to be killed. He was going to be crucified. And yet at Gethsemane, you see Jesus sweating drops of blood, crying, um, terrified at going to the cross, knowing that it's God's plan, knowing that he had come to die, yet he's begging his father, let this cup of wrath pass from me, right? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so he had free will, but he subjected his free will under his father perfectly. It's what we're doing and what we're involved with. This is why Jesus weeps. It's not weeping as a form of legal fiction or play acting or pro forma. These are authentic tears over those whom rejected him. Those who historically, verse 31, murdered the prophets, those who would, would kill the messengers who would come in the, the record of the book of Acts, they came, verse 34, the Jews killed, crucified, and flogged God's messengers. It's emotion. The emotion should not be underestimated. Look at verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the repeated terms. Um, Jerusalem, he's crying out over them. Sad for these rejectors, just like David, the, the kind of forerunner of Christ, cried over his son who had been killed, Absalom, Absalom, my son, Absalom, Absalom, who had been killed in a wartime execution, Second Samuel 18.33. And then Jesus later would say, Simon, Simon, Satan desires to sift you like wheat, in Luke twenty two thirty one, and Paul on the road to Damascus, when he was persecuting the church under the name Saul, he was thrown on the ground, saw the bright light, and the Lord in that vision of heaven said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? There's importance here. There's, there's genuine grave lamenting from Jesus in this emotive expression, and it's real. It's genuine. It's showing the commitment that Jesus genuinely had as Messiah. It wasn't like, okay, I'm going to the Jews. Let's get this done, and then we can go to the Gentiles. He really came as their Messiah, truly fulfilling prophecy as the one who came then, but they were going to reject, but that rejection was real and felt by the Lord. The synoptics said that Jesus... And Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel just have Jesus coming to Jerusalem early and then going away and having his earthly ministry primarily in Galilee, 70 miles north. But the gospel of John actually says that he came down. He came down for Passover. He came down for the Feast of Booths. He came down at times and ministered to the, the Israelites in Jerusalem, in the city. So he had a heart for the city. Yes, he reached the Jews who had left the city, who would be up in Galilee and other parts of the, the greater region of Israel. But, but there was a condensed um, sort of laser-like focus on Jerusalem to win them. John 2, John 5, John 6, 7, and 12 all speak 
of this. And we don't know, you know, all of the different ways that Jesus engaged Jerusalem. John 21, 25 says, there's many other things that Jesus did. And every one of, this is the last verse in the gospel of John. It says, were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus did a whole lot more than we have contained for us in our gospels. So we don't know, but he definitely had a heart for Jerusalem. His free will was unencumbered. He did not have any sin. So this is just his heart genuinely on his sleeve. We know a sinner who had the very same kind of heart and emotion expressed in Romans 9, this sinner named the Apostle Paul, um, he wrote Romans 9, which is the most sort of reformed theological sovereign grace and election chapter in all of the Bible. And it begins with these three verses. Paul's saying, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So Paul is saying, look, between God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I'm telling the truth. My conscience even is bearing witness of these things, and I have sorrow and anguish that's unceasing. In verse 3, he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He, too, had a heart for Israel, for his kinsmen, his fellow Jews, and would wish himself accursed in hell if he could make the trade, if he could make the swap and get them into heaven, he would. And that was his conscience before the Lord. This is the same kind of passion. It's the passion for the lost. Verse 37 goes on. It says, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. The heart for Christ was to gather everyone up. They were killing prophets. They were going to kill Christ. They're conspiring to do so. And yet Jesus wanted to gather them like a mom. And you think of Paul's heart in 1 Thessalonians 2, where he was saying, I, I ministered to you like a nursing mother. It's that, that heart that would say, I would just give you anything. My own heart is on display. This is God's desire. Now, God is sovereign. He has a predetermined plan. He knows the end from the beginning. All things work together for the good. We know that in Romans 8, 28. Ephesians 1, 11, I believe it is. All things work after the counsel of his will. Jesus came as a predetermined plan. It was He was the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. So in the mind of God, this was always going to happen. We know that's true. And at the same time, that reality does not cancel out the heart for God that he has over the whole world. This isn't just Jesus being the sympathetic part of God. This is all of God is on display in Christ. If you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father. This is the heart of God crying over rejection. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's not just the wicked, you know, some of them picking and choosing. This is all of them, anyone. But that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. And why will you die, O house of Israel? God has no pleasure in rejection. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Listen to these words. 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is God's heart. This is the heart that we need to have. We need to be the extension of God's heart, the extension of God's tears, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life and believe. God's word never speaks of determinism. It's never this sort of we're marionetted, you know, puppets on on strings. There is free will and it's manifest in Christ, but it's also seen in everyone, everyone made in the image of God, those who accept Christ and those who accept reject Christ are doing so by free will, free moral acting agents who are responsible for what they do. And there's a cause and effect with it. Verse 37, look at the end. You were not willing. I would have gathered you, but you would not be gathered. I would have called you to myself, but you were not willing. Now, those of the Arminian persuasion who are, they're sort of the Calvinists and the Arminians, and um, then you have some people who would claim Calminian status. But um, the Arminians, they would uh, claim that God is limited in his sovereignty by a verse like this. Like he can't be in control of everything that's happening or going to happen because the Israelites here, the J- Jerusalem rejectors, stopped what God would otherwise wanted to do. It's logic-based. But that kind of logic ungods God. It, it puts man in the driver's seat as opposed to God being in the driver's seat. And we know God is sovereign over all these things. There was a trend in the late 90s called open theism that made God open in his, in his sort of future mind, looking out into what could happen, open to a zillion possibilities of things that could happen, but he can't directly prescribe any one of them because he's limited his own sovereignty. And that's just not true. And that's a way to try to protect God with logic from like doing bad things to good people. But we're all sinners. We all deserve hell because we've rebelled against him. And by God's grace, he sovereignly chose some to believe in him. But all of that sovereign um, teaching does not undo the real dynamics of free will. You say, well, how does that all fit together? Was it Israel's unwillingness to embrace Christ that kept Christ from embracing them? Was it? Well, yes, in terms of Christ's offer was genuine and their rejection was damning. If you reject Christ, that is your responsibility for what you did. But I would say at the same time, the Bible teaches that God is in control of all things. So no, in terms of Israel's unbelief, it didn't reprogram God's will. It didn't determine how God's sovereign plan was going to play out. Those two things have to be held in tension. Yes, Christ's offer is genuine. Christ's tears are genuine. Israel's rejection was genuine and real and causative for them. But that was all umbrellaed over by God's sovereign plan. It's difficult to square God's bigger plan with reactions and teaching like this. Christ predicted his death, but then begged to not have to die, but then died 
in submission to the Father's will. All of that is, is looking at things through the perspective of either down here on earth or looking from the perspective of heaven. It just depends on which perspective you're watching from. Are you down on the football field or are you up in the nosebleeds? I mean, you kind of see things differently, right, from either perspective, and both things are happening at the same time. And that's how the Bible teaches things. Think of the life of Job. Job is down on earth. He's being faithful. Chapter one, he's making sacrifices for his kids, even for sins that they may commit or might not commit. I mean, he was a faithful man and his faith was so strong that up in heaven, a debate ensues in heaven where Satan goes to God and God allows for this in his sovereignty. And God, uh, Satan comes with his angels and says, can we test Job? Can we strip him of everything? If you allow me to strip him of everything, even down to his own health, he'll reject you. You'll see. God allows for it in his sovereign will to put on display the fact that Job, though he wasn't perfect, his faith would be unbreakable. And so all these calamities happen, everything's stripped away, even down to his children dying, and Job's faith holds firm. He's a roller coaster ride, but he holds firm to the end. And you see things from two different perspectives because sometimes God pulls back the curtain and lets us see things through the lens of heaven. But oftentimes, all we see is what we need to do down here on earth. And from our earthly perspective, we're operating within real, not legal fiction, but real dynamics of our own free will. But we also rest in the fact that God has the bigger plan. Think of Proverbs 16, verse 9. The heart of the man plans the way. I'm making my plan, but the Lord establishes the steps. That's the divine tension of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. What an author that I read recently called compatibilism. It's compatible. These things are compatible. It's not hyper-Arminian. It's not hyper-Calvin, Calvinism. It's just a compatible tension in Scripture, in a book I read um, or perused this week, it's called What About Free Will by Scott Christensen. He says, everybody has encountered people who are um, all or nothing people, all or nothing. Now, I've been accused of this, but all or nothing. The, the all or nothing person is a person who in the room, when you say, hey, can you turn the TV down? They just turn the TV off. We love that person, especially at Christmas time. And Someone driving, you're driving you and you need to get to work and you're late or you're late to an appointment and you say, hey, can you pick up the speed? And then all of a sudden they go from moderate speed to, you know, like Mario Andretti and you feel like you're going to die. Um, many Christians reflect this in how they think about God's sovereignty or human responsibility. They go, God is sovereign, so I'm just shutting things down. I'll just rest and sit back in my easy chair and read my books and I'm good. Or, oh man, it's, it's all up to us, and oh, did I do this, and I need to now you know, do religious things to make myself feel better about what's happening and get back into God's favor. No, no, it's a dynamic tension of resting in the full sovereignty of God. He is in control. He knows the end from the beginning. He has those who are going to be saved, who are going to accept, and those who are going to reject. That's all part of God's plan. And at the same time, we're called to go on mission, called to give the gospel, called to appeal as an ambassador for Christ, for people to come to Christ. We're sad when they reject. We're, we're, we're appealing to them because we don't want them to go to hell. All of that is real. Most of modern and even Historic missions is based on people believing in the sovereignty of God, that God sent them to a nation, that God has people there that will awaken once you get there. 
I mean, just to make it personal, people, they, they believe that Alaska missions is, is not something that, you know, can be done. It's, it's just too hard. It's too difficult. People are too set in their ways. They're, they're in their community and you can't reach them. Well, I believe the word of God penetrates into hearts in all regions of the world. And where the word of God is preached, people come to life. It's just tried and true. The Bible does the work. The word does the work by his Holy Spirit. And so faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. And so if you have preaching in villages, in any part of our world, people will come to life because God has ordained it to be so. And also people are called to believe. So R.C. Sproul put it best. You would think R.C. Sproul, he wouldn't believe in free will, but actually I read it. You can Google for it later. Not now, but later. Says man, this is what he says man has free will, but man does not have autonomous will. We have free will, but we're not God. We're under God. And God is sovereign. We're not we're not untethered from his will. We're not disconnected, but we are operating as free moral exercising agents made in the image of God, operating in accordance with coalescing with his sovereign will. All right, so that's Sort of the, the reason for free will, these, this explanation for it, it's to show that Christ, his passion is real, his offer is real, rejection or acceptance is real, um, we are responsible. But what, is, what are the results of free will? And that's what's heavy in this text in verses 38 and 39. Here's the result. Israel comes under full judgment because they rejected Christ. Verse 38, see your house is left to you desolate. See to you, or see your house is left to you desolate. Israel's full judgment. Your house is left desolate. He wants them to see this. Don't miss this. Your rejection has condemned your city, your house, really the people of Israel to desolation. The point is cementing man's moral responsibility for sin. You say, well, what's happened to Israel? Well, under Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68, um, that whole long list of curses pronounced against Israel, all of that was embedded in sort of the contract of this nation going into the promised land. Deuteronomy 28 is Moses writing the laws or going into the promised land and saying by commitment, if you reject God, if you go after the world, curses will be heaped upon you. Deuteronomy 28, 15, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I commend you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then it's listed from there. Now, what has happened to Israel? Israel's a phenomenon in and of itself. I'm reading a biography on um, Netanyahu right now, just with the interesting, uh, you know, the interest of what's happening in Israel. Israel has kept its identity. It's still center stage in the news under all kinds of attack from Antichrist and, uh, you know, false ideologically driven, you know, Islamic nations and, you know, tribal groups attacking. Yet Israel still stands. It had been stripped of nationhood in a political sense, and then that was re-dignified and asserted in 1948, reestablishes the nation of Israel. 
Um, you know, you just, it's, it's, it's always a spotlight because it was God's chosen people from the beginning. The promises of the Old Testament will be kept literally, physically, ethnically for the Jews in the future. So it ties everything together. We're just grafted into that plan. But the people of God, um, you know, they, it, it's, like, it's as if they've been scattered abroad and they would lose their identity, but then it's still here. <laughs> even, well, even if they don't live there, it's, I mean, the Jewish identity, the history, all of it tethered to the Old Testament, all the way back to the beginning, to the Abrahamic covenant, it's still being fulfilled to the writings and the law of Moses. It's still there. And all of that was the foreshadowing of Christ. And the pivot point is whether people accept or reject. But the remnant has been being saved through all the generations. And these Jews are part of the remnant being saved until the final ingathering. You remember the, the hatred and rage of Hitler trying to destroy and decimate and wipe the Jewish people as a nation, as a people group, as an ethnicity off the map, off the grid, and they're still here. Yes, uh, they lost um, in disobedience glory. You remember the declaration of being, they were declared Ichabod in the temple because the ark had left in 1 Samuel 4.21. Ichabod means inglorious, without glory. The glory later as under Babylonian captivity, Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 10 that the glory departed and went up to Mount Zion and sort of vanished away for that time. And then it returned with the coming of Christ. That was 586 BC. It's, it's desolation. Now, how does this apply to us personally? Well, again, it comes back to Israel's rejection. Rejection, You were not willing needs to be the indictment on our own hearts if we have rejected Christ, if we have given Christ the stiff arm. J.C. Ryle says, let the ground we take up be always that of the passage that we are now considering. He says, Christ would not gather men, but they will, like their will, they will not be gathered. They wouldn't be gathered. Christ would save men, but they will not be saved. Let it be a settled principle in our religion that man's salvation, if saved, is holy of God. And man's ruin, if lost, is holy of himself. The evil that is in us is all our own. The good, if we have any, is all of God. The saved in the next world will give all the glory to God and the lost in the next world will find that they have destroyed themselves. That's how free will plays into this. There is a result in rejecting. Desolation. Desolation on what? The house. It says the house is left to you desolate. desolate. That could be a picture of the temple. Jesus, it's called the temple, a house of prayer in Matthew 21 after he cleansed it. it. needs to be a house of prayer. This is broader than just the temple and the temple's destruction and Jerusalem's destruction, though that is included. What we're talking about is all of God's nation. In Luke 19, um, 41 to 44, you have Jesus' triumphal entry. Do you remember when he entered? It's on Monday. He's preaching. He's preaching a long time between Wednesday and Thursday before he's arrested He's giving his final words here. But on Monday, he came in and they were saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. At the end of that march into Jerusalem, 
he fell apart in tears at that point as well. That was Monday. This is him weeping again on Wednesday. Verse 41, and when he drew near, he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. They missed Christ. And there was a response to that from God where General Titus from The Roman army came in in AD 70 and destroyed and leveled, literally raised Jerusalem and leveled it on itself. Verse 39, if you just read the beginning of that, it leaves things pretty hopeless. It says, for I tell you, you will not see me again. If you just stop there, it is like a ringing death knell during a funeral march. Just that ring of the bell over and over again. It's over. It's over. It's over. You will not see me again. But my point that I'm making here is this is the Lord's rescue. It's not just Israel's full judgment, but the Lord's rescue for them. Spurgeon narrated this first part of the verse with sadness. He said, nothing remained for the king but to pronounce the solemn sentence of death. And those who would not come upon come upon, unto him that they might have life. The whole house of the Jews was left desolate, a spiritual desolation. Christ finally left it. Jerusalem was too far gone to be rescued for its self-sought doom. His personal ministry to them was at an end. But verse 39 has a pivotal word, and it's the word until. Do you see that? It says, I tell you, you will not see me again until, not to be confused with the word unless. It could have been unless, unless you do this. No. This is the point of the passage that moves from free will to sovereign grace. Left to ourselves, because we're born in transgressions and sins and blinded by our own self-deception, blinded by Satan's influence, left to ourselves, we're always going to choose ourself, our flesh, our sin, and Satan. But God, by his saving grace, opens our eyes. And in this case, it's the picture of hope where he's going to return again. And he's returning to his people, the Israelites, the Jews. They're under a stupor, but not for always, because you won't see Christ again. Here's the word, until, until he comes again. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Prior to that moment, they had said, blessed. They had said this verse, singing this psalm on Monday, and they did it in a kind of a fickleness and a superficial rally. They wanted Jesus to be their leader, but did they really want him? And one day when he does return, they will want him wholeheartedly, sincerely, genuinely in their free will. They will be affirming Christ. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord overrides man's free will. Man is bent on choosing sin and death until saving grace. Israel will be restored. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Isaiah 66, 10 through 22. Zechariah 14, 1 through 11. All of these passages speak of the restoration of Israel. Listen to this one verse, Zechariah 12, 10. 
And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. What's meant here is there is joy and there's also weeping when Israel encounters Christ and they see him for who he is and say, the Lord has returned, but he's the one we pierced. We're sad for that, but we're also rejoicing that he is our Messiah. It's joy mixed with sadness. The Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled. Romans 11, 11 through 12, there's a full ingathering of all of Israel. Romans eleven twenty three. It says, if they do not continue in their unbelief, Israel will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. It was all God's plan originally. It says, for if you were cut out from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, in other words, the Gentiles were put into this plan, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, the Israelites, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wiser in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, listen, all Israel will be saved. It's written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. All Israel will be saved. Your free will is yours. But just to be clear, apart from God's intervention... We'd always choose the wrong way. Our natural inclination is not towards God. But God, by his grace, opened our eyes so that we would say yes to Christ. And I would just encourage you, if you've not believed on Christ, believe on him. Give your full heart. We're going to hear five testimonies at 5 p.m. tonight. Five for five. Come back for that. It should stir your hearts to say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. It's the grace of God that prompted us to say yes to Jesus. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. Let's love Jesus.